there's just a whole richness of reimagining and thinking through the new possible that designers are uniquely positioned to bring to evolving how we experience life and work, but also how we grow our companies. And those companies that are design leaders outperform top fortune companies uh, year over year as design professionals, as people that are involved in, in creating spaces. If we really lean into the people using those spaces and understand those needs and can quantify them to the business leaders and the various stakeholders that we can make huge shifts in how and what we're delivering in industry. I'd like to be the first to welcome you to Design Nerds Anonymous, the podcast that sparks curiosity at the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Amanda Schneider, founder and president at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow, and sister company to design brands you know and love, like Interior Design, Metropolis, Material Bank, and more. And I'd like to be the second person to welcome you to Design Nerds Anonymous. My name is Hannah Vitti, and I've been Amanda's right hand throughout the season. I'm the audio journalist engineer producing Design Nerds Anonymous with ThinkLab. You'll hear my voice throughout the season. In this podcast, we've invited trailblazers from within the design industry and beyond to engage in conversations and explore the topics that will drive our future. At ThinkLab, our passion is sharing inspiration for your business, fuel for your design process, and connections with people and ideas for positive disruption. So thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. In this episode, we're going to explore the D word. Yep, disruption. But that word can evoke one of two emotions. When you think of being disrupted, it may conjure fear. But being the disruptor, that's empowering. So I challenge you as you listen. If you're feeling defensive or fearful, you might be on the wrong side of disruption. Disruption that's already happening. So to help you focus on the latter emotion, you'll notice we've made the phrase positive disruption. To us, this means disruption you're on the positive side of, helping to make change for the better. We hope this episode fuels your thinking towards positive disruption in our industry and beyond. I think we're at a crossroads. Like it's a very interesting time to me in terms of positive disruption. This is Jennifer Killian, partner at McKinsey and thought leader in their digital design practice, sharing insight into design's leading role in our current economy. How do we leverage that but to drive business needs? I feel like we're at this weird intersection where all of these emotions that we're all experiencing is kind of bringing a new level of humanity to a previously maybe more divided, more stark, more professional aura business world. How do we translate that emotional archive into business solutions? We're in an interesting time, aren't we? Where the sustainability of humans and not just buildings is both crucial and fragile. There's also renewed focus on mental health as we faced quarantines, social distancing, and immense cultural change in 2020. Generally, change is scary. But as we look at the pivotal role of design as a key element in helping people feel comfortable and safe in public again, McKinsey has developed a system to understand the emotions around our workers. And understanding is the first step towards improving the spaces where we live, work, heal, learn, and play. 
So one of the things that we've been focused on is actually interviewing several hundred people from all over the world to understand the implications on business and people's personal lives from COVID-19. So we've created something called the Emotional Archive, which is a really interesting aspect of looking at the new possible and emotion, um, because we really wanted to understand, you know, what are the emotions people are going through? How are they sharing things? And some of the nice themes are that across continents, across the globe, across different, um, very different settings, personally and professionally, there's a lot of commonality. People shared types of emotions like hopefulness and anxiety and acceptance. So I think the really beautiful thing there is that we're going through this very trying time, but at the same time, we're going through a global shared experience that will be a part of us forever, you know, and I think it's a pretty meaningful thing to really have learned that disruption while causing tons of change is actually a movement for recognition that there, there is equity, there is commonality in emotion. Remember these phrases, equity and commonality in emotion. You know, designing from that mindset, and it's a, it's a tricky business to do emotional design, but it's so meaningful. You know, there are a lot of things that are being done like never before and breaking down barriers of communication, of information sharing across countries and organizations, all for the good of humanity. And I find that personally very inspiring. You know, we're not only designing for pain points and to solve the things that hurt, but it almost sounds like we're making this split to design and solve for positive emotions that we want to evoke. Let's pause here to take that in. Instead of solving for things that hurt, we can design for the positive emotions we want to evoke. That's powerful. Perhaps the world is now more open to the power of design and design thinking. But how will our industry change? Where will disruption come from? Let's hear from Elizabeth Von Ley, Design and Brand Strategy Principal at HDR in New York, an all-around big thinker. Well, I think we'll see in the next year that those that are too reluctant to change might not be around. That's sort of the, the bottom line. If you're not flexible and willing to evolve quickly when the meteor is coming, it's going to hit you. It, it breaks my heart. I'm on the board for ASID National, so I want there to be lots and lots and lots of amazing interior designers and architects, but at the end of the day, it is a bit of a survival of the fittest in this, in this and any industry. The plus side of that, and that I think we're seeing, especially in the, in the design industry and interiors and architecture, is this like oh, I only do X or Y, the over-specialization. Like ThinkLab, I'm sure you've been seeing the blending of verticals for some time. But this goes beyond the work we do for our clients and becomes about us and the skill sets and business models in the design industry. The over-specialization, I think that there, that has its place. Don't hire me to design an OR. I probably wouldn't do the best job, but... To, to only ever have ultra-specialized knowledge starts missing the opportunities of crossover design, especially with COVID. We're, I, I work for HDR, who we do a little of everything. I work on everything from hospitality to corporate, but we're known for really excellent healthcare design. I'm being invited into everything from airports and train stations to 
hospitality and retail conversations, both as, as a designer, but also to be lending that crossover expertise of healthcare, because suddenly everyone really cares how legitimately healthy a space is. Not, oh, does like the color raise your mood? I mean, not that I don't think that that has a place, but do these materials, will they withstand to the, the cleaning rigors that will kill the coronavirus? That's a, that's not a, a subjective, you know, question. So the evolution of designers right now, I think, is in being more of a crossover and not, and not being a specialist in such a way where, I mean, if you were a specialist restaurant designer right now, I, I fear for your, I fear for your business safety. Um, so I think that the crossover thing will be pretty big. To echo Elizabeth's thoughts in a recent Forbes article, McKinsey and IDEO predict the future won't be only deep knowledge in one area or shallow, broad insights across many areas. But instead, the strongest candidates will be T-shaped, balanced between the two. ThinkLab is seeing the same thing in the design industry as vertical markets blend in a new world of distributed work with healthcare-level cleanliness and hospitality-level experiential spaces. Designers will have to balance their deep specialty knowledge in one vertical with broad and creative thinking across many verticals. And for the manufacturers listening, this may affect how product manufacturers need to present ideas to inspire them. Speaking of manufacturers, let's think for a moment about how this blending of verticals applies to the product suppliers that serve the design industry. Here's Elizabeth again, this time considering how change might affect the world of product. There are some areas where you're not going to get rid of specialization. Like I said, like the, the OR example applies for manufacturers too. There's a reason there's only like two suppliers on the planet that make that stuff. Um, and, and why it's crazy expensive. You have to make it crazy expensive if you only sell six in a year. Um, but for the rest of it, a lot of manufacturers could make small shifts to be serving other, other sectors. I know I um, have spoken with a couple manufacturers about those opportunities, honestly, kind of like begging them to partner saying, guys, I don't, I know you're really proud of your office stuff, but if you want to make some sales in the next three years, we should be working together on solving this other healthcare focused problem. It's really about cleanability at, at the bottom, at bottom line, cleanability, and then like certain ergonomic standards that are different than workplace. But everything else is the same. The same sort of like testing regimen for furniture is applicable on healthcare as it is on office furniture. Um, but for some reason, they just haven't seen the dollar signs or they haven't, I guess, put forth the effort. I think that that could be a, a big, if I'm looking in the crystal ball, a gigantic opportunity for a lot of the manufacturer side, particularly if they are participating in the change in the way we're designing remotely more than maybe they have in the past. But it's not just about the product. The process and the role the product vendor plays may evolve as well. The participation and the role of the vendor 
is shifting too. I think that's a, that depends a lot on which sort of sector you're talking about, but particularly for commercial design and for very large projects, things like hospitals or things like new corporate headquarters, the ones that, to be honest with you, a lot of the manufacturers, like they don't necessarily make great money providing furniture for a single house. But if they're the if they're the supplier for an entire hospital with thousands of chairs, that's their business model. The way that they might participate in the design process more than they maybe have in the past, I know that that's happened a lot in sort of office design with design services from some of these groups going in in house. But I don't know if there's going to be a whole lot of office design in the coming years. And if they can pivot some of that into other fields that probably could use them. Healthcare is a not small example. It's one of the only sectors that the projects are not canceled right now. They are charging forward full steam. You know, we have a lot of healthcare built environment coming in the next five to six years in this country. And so the furniture manufacturers, the material suppliers of of all shapes and sizes. Let's take this disruption topic one step further. It's not just about the blending of verticals. Many more things that were once clearly delineated are beginning to shift, one of them being where designers are employed and who is employing them. Here's Kelly Wirtz, Happiness Director with Material Bank. She has a front row seat in terms of seeing the who behind the product specification conversation when talking about design industry evolution. Design doesn't just come out of a firm anymore, right? Now, now real estate companies have their own design firms. Corporations have their own internal design teams, right? Um, dealers have their own internal design teams. So design is coming from all these different places because they're trying to find more efficient ways to actually get that creative part into a project. We'll bring you more about disruption after this short break. Hey there. With this podcast, we really wanted to create a different kind of ad. I've played a personal role in selecting the sponsors because they represent big thinking happening in our industry. For this, our first season, our sponsors were selected from the early adopters of our Think Lab Insider program, a new service designed to help Sandow brand partners keep their finger on the pulse of industry change. You can visit thinklab.design backslash insider for more information on that program. This episode's sponsorship comes from our friends at Kimball International. Now, you may be familiar with their 65-year history in the office furniture world with well-respected contract brands like Kimball and National, But what you may not know are the details of their own quest for positive disruption amidst their own industry as they journey to transform the workplace. I'm thrilled to tell you about one piece of that, a new and complimentary brand called Etcetera. Now, the Kimball International team noticed market needs changing. They recognized the need for additional options that would give the market more choices, faster, and more affordably, but without sacrificing great design. In response, they created this new brand called Etcetera. As part of Kimball International, Etcetera maximizes the experience and strengths of its sister brands, National and Kimball, 
but with an extra dose of nimble that allows the brand to be flexible and always on trend. Etcetera offers globally curated, fashion-forward furniture solutions, from seating to sofas to dining and occasional tables. They have a pretty impressive mix of products, both for home and office use and home office use. <laughs> Not to mention their accessories and outdoor furniture, an area that ThinkLab predicts will be growing in the coming years. Etcetera is really styled for the home, but built for the office, so durability and quality are second to none. But Perhaps the most exciting and disruptive thing about Etcetera is just the process. They make it easy, period. Easy to specify, easy to be inspired, and easy to order. And maybe, more importantly today, is fast. Etcetera's standard lean time is two weeks, so easy and fast sounds like a win-win. To learn more about Etcetera, you can browse any social media platform or visit lifeworkecetera.com. That's lifeworketc.com. All right, back to the program. Now, let's get back to explore one arguable disruptor to the design industry in recent history. You know, I think it's no secret that the way we work kind of came in was the opposite of a traditional design approach where instead of saying, we want to deeply understand you, we want to deeply understand your needs. They said, we're going to template this. We're opening up a billion square feet across the globe every month. And we're going to tell you what best practices are because we're experts in this and you are not. So you focus on what you do and let us do this for you. And then they iterated. How do you kind of reconcile the traditional design approach with that we work approach? Here's AJ Perrin. EVP, design futurist at Sandow, who has worked on the design side of the industry, the manufacturer side, and a few sides in between. Let's hear her take on this line of thinking. You know, WeWork was an interesting experiment. And when we look at co-working, there's a lot of reasons why people want to come together. It's they want a community. They want to feel like they're being inspired and they want to be collectively around people that are doing cool things. But I think WeWork's take was really so much about leveraging technology. And that was kind of like, if you ask them, they said they were a data-driven business. They, they were really into data gathering and really understanding that part. And the spaces, they focused on amenities, but not really the individual needs of how people actually work. Like the number one complaint is what? Acoustics. Right. And um, there was some solutions, but not an overall solution in most of their spaces that really addressed acoustics. Um, And I think when we look at materiality, I mean, they were very much about putting in super cheap, inexpensive, not very ergonomic furniture and like literally daisy chaining the electrical together with, you know, glorified extension cords. And so for being somebody that wanted to be so technology advanced, what actually they did in person with the actual product and application was was very inexpensive and did not meet everyone's needs. You know, if you had a bad back, if you hurt yourself and you needed to be at a different height because your, your elbow and your shoulder were injured, and so you had to have some adjustability. There wasn't a lot of options for you. 
and that's fine if you if you have to sit somewhere for a half an hour, but not if you're going to sit someplace for five hours, right? Individuals, number one, they need to be comfortable, but the whole safety aspect is just going to throw a whole spin on this because when you look at materiality as well, people are going to have another assessment every time they're in a shared space of how cleanable is that thing that I'm going to go sit in and work in or, you know, interact with. And if you're using inexpensive materials and products, you're not gonna have that same type of cleanability um, that you would with things that are just better designed. So where they really miss the mark from an interior design standpoint is addressing the user's physical needs from the design space, their acoustical needs. For a company that was very purpose-driven they weren't purpose-driven when it looked at sustainability and how they purchased product and meaning furniture and the reusability of it. And, you know, there's designers know, like we are so ingrained into looking at different standards for furniture, where the furniture's coming, how is it going to get reused, how durable it is. They didn't have those standards. And I think a lot of designers and clients were off put of that. So I do remember about a year ago going into New York and having different discussions with all sorts of different firms and asking them, what do they need? What were their biggest challenges? And the majority, I would say 75% of them said, we need to figure out how to bring in subscription design and services because we're losing business to WeWork. And it was a different methodology where, you know, you had a large client that you would spend all this time designing and you put all this work into it to add 50 people to or another floor onto a building. And instead, they could go to a co-working space and sublease it for way cheaper and yet didn't have to pay for any of that design, right? And we're not saying that their people did better, but from the upfront sales story, to that end user and that client, that was really hard for people to actually compete against. And so, you know, they were asking things like, could we look at um, subleasing furniture instead of, you know, selling them furniture where they could actually rent the furniture? Um, could we look at, you know, providing them not just the built environment, but also the experiences of building community and building teams and all of these extra kind of social amenities that designers are not used to like creating. They're great at creating a built experience, but not necessarily the social experience. I mean, they don't spend a ton of time doing that. And so there is room in the market for that. It just has to be a different model where that company is not over leveraging their real estate. And then it just takes one thing in the economy to change and it all crumbles down. But, you know, somewhere there's, there's an answer in between where, I mean, some design firms have really thought about looking at subscription services and it seems like everything's going to subscription, but there, there is, there is a point in time where that does make sense. And Again, looking at the process of design, every disruptor, there's probably something positive to learn from it, but there was kind of a 
a negative side of this as well. And, and I think some of that has to do with the overly systematized design that was one size fits all and maybe something that's almost anti-sustainability, like kind of the rise and fall, subsequent fall of WeWork. What are the negatives that, that we learn from that that we don't want to repeat? Well, I think the negatives are, you know, anything can be oversold. I think the the bad parts of it were, you know, it didn't work for everybody in a company. And it, the, the whole aspect of a one-size-fits-all, we see so much with humans that we have such diverse needs. So you have to be able to have an agile, a flexible space, lots of places for people to have choices. That's really, really important. And when you have a one-size-fits-all mentality, that's what you compromise many times is the diversity of choice that is needed to accommodate a higher inclusivity rate of people that are going to work in this space. All right. So one last question is just, is there, is there room in the middle? If you look at, you know, the traditional design process where you, you know, start going through everything, A, B, C, D, schematic design, design development, you know, all of these pieces. And, and it was interesting at Giants, uh, the first year that I went, um, I led a kind of a discussion with the audience on stage and somebody said, it's like, we're taking the same design process and we're trying to fit the same things in a shorter time frame, and that's not working, you know, but we work with an extreme the other way. Is there anything that we can learn from this that's a happy medium between the two? So I think that the happy medium is there are some things that you can actually systemize and using data to really help you make decisions about a space can be very helpful. But it's, you know, when you look at data, there's two sides of it. There's the, the raw information that's coming out but then there's also the things that you can't discover in the raw data that you just have to like be in the space and understand the users and understand just because there's a high count over here or nobody's using that space over there, there's, there might be a whole reason why. And so you have to have people with the skill sets that can interpret the data. And a lot of data doesn't mean anything unless you have people that can interpret it some of the good things that came out with it is that, yeah, people can work in diverse places. They don't necessarily have to be at the head office. They can be in a remote center. And you're seeing that a lot of companies are like, well, instead of us having a major headquarters downtown, maybe we have a couple sub offices that people can go into an office to work, but there's you know one or two of them spread throughout the city where they can have community, but they don't have the full commute. And guess what? Our rent is a lot cheaper, but yet they have the amenities, they have the social, it's still their space. And maybe it's not co-working, maybe it's the space that they own. So, you know, what COVID is really doing too, is it's putting a, a lens on the things that are really working and what's not. But what's gonna come out of that, that hybrid of the old networking, you know, and maybe some of the new is too far um, of a departure for people. There's, a, there's an answer in the middle there of a hybrid of taking the best of what did work or the information that helped make those decisions and yet maybe putting a different spin on it where you have a much more clear vision and design thinking 
around what goes into making that space, right? So maybe it's a smaller, shorter process, but it's still a process and you're still vetting products and systems and things through it. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with a lot of these co-working spaces going forward. Now we've heard you. We know many designers would argue that WeWork prioritized efficiency over effectiveness when it came to design. But I think one of the beautiful things about this current period of time is that people are more open to the business case for design than ever before. But we have to find the right balance between efficiency and effectiveness. And this need for time efficiency has always been there, right? As we look at capitalist economy, the need for efficiency in the name of business results has always been there. But when accelerated by disruptive external forces, like a global pandemic, it can force acceptance of change. Here's Kelly again. I think it's interesting that we're talking about disruption, right? Because there's so many layers and so many phases of it that eventually require us to move forward and find better and more efficient ways to do things. I know the struggle for, I'm sure, manufacturers right now is just coming up with quick solutions. And in my opinion, like there's a couple quick solutions, sure, get them out the door. But after that, it should be a thoughtful solution because if you paste together all of these like band-aids, it's not going to solve the universal shift and problem that we have. And I think the idea of quick solutions is exactly what many are struggling with right now. Let's face it, we are in a pretty big time of transition, and action makes us feel better than waiting. So while we'd all love to have a crystal ball to show us what the future holds, ThinkLab predicts, like many positive disruptors, this will be an iterative approach, and one that has to balance efficiency with effectiveness. Here's AJ again, sharing insight about the changing times we're in. Well, I think some of it is you've got to turn everything upside down. I think you need to take that massless hard-cured meat and throw it upside down. Really focus on that self-actualization. What is that, what could that space be that could be healthy and engaging? And, you know, what, what could it be to get people at that very first spot, that self-actualization? Right now, we're living in the bottom rung <laughs> of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're, we're worried about safety, right? We're worried about health. We're worried about, you know, how we're getting our food. That's where we're living. And that's not necessarily where creative problem solving comes. So we've got to flip it upside down. And we've got to really focus on how do we get people what they need and if, if you can build that and you can really think about that self-actualization and looking at it in like a myriad of ways and have lots of choices, you're probably going to design something that's going to work for 90% of the people. You've just got to be really open and get some needs assessment. So I think there is a different way to do it. And I know some really creative designers, you know, some of it is they've just, they have so much knowledge because they've built it up over their their tenure, that they can look at a space really differently and with enough feedback, and it's the critical feedback that you need from a diverse group of users, I think you can get there much faster. We just haven't, we just haven't practiced that way. 
However, in order to encourage an investment in design, we have to make the business case. Even the least sophisticated design eye knows they simply feel better in some spaces over others. Sometimes it's hard to justify when looking at a spreadsheet. So how do we make the business case for investment? Let's go back to Jennifer at McKinsey. The overview on the McKinsey website reads, we help organizations across the private and public and social sectors create change that matters. From the C-suite to the front line, we partner with our clients to transform their organizations in the ways that matter most to them. So let's hear how design ties into that. How do we make the case for investment in thoughtful design? Brilliant question. You know, one of the things that we've realized, um, we've been studying this for a few years, is that companies who embrace design and who embrace human-centered needs actually outperform those that don't. So I think this is really the time when people can lean in across uh, their organizations and show the business value of design, show that by thinking through empathetically the needs of the constituents we're serving with design, with real estate, with interiors, whatever it might be, that if we think about it from a human-centered perspective first, we are going to actually outperform companies that don't. And there's a lot of research on this. Um, McKinsey has done our own set with the business value of design that you can see online, um, which tracks key factors on that and how the companies who embrace it uh, do better and grow faster. There's also an index called MDI that's from the, um, that's the Design Management Institute. And the Design Management Institute actually tracks, has tracked for over 10 years, a dozen companies or so in an index to see how their performance grew that are design leader companies, companies like Coca-Cola and Disney and Nike and all the ones that you'd recognize. And those companies that are design leaders outperform top uh, fortune companies by about 200% uh, year over year. So I think that this is the time that we really need to embrace the fact that as, as design professionals, as people that are involved in, in creating and, and uh, developing and maintaining spaces, that if we really lean, lean into the people using those spaces and understand those needs and can quantify them to the business leaders and the various stakeholders, that we can make huge shifts in how and what we're delivering. Back to the topic of how to balance the need for efficiency, yet still take time for keen understanding of problems to solve with design. You won't be surprised to discover that ThinkLab narrowed in on a key element. Research. Listen to Jennifer describe how research drives perspective, which drives empathy and leads to business results. Two points maybe there. One, we've actually conducted a bunch of research uh, with residents in various uh, countries trying to better understand the residential experience pre and post COVID or during, I should say, and hopefully post soon COVID. And what we found is that, you know, there's a lot of need obviously for different aspects of health and safety and wellness to be covered. And I'll, I'll address that in a moment. The other thing we found though is in workplaces that speaking to, you know, the tenant versus real estate company relationship, it's been really fascinating because employers seem to think that their employees want to return to the office no matter what and are extremely excited to get the heck out of their homes and socialize and be in more productive office settings as soon as possible. But what we found in the surveys is that actually the majority of employees want to continue working from home and they want to do it at least part-time, if not full-time, and for quite a distant future to see to come. So I think you know, that's going to have huge implications on the future of, of work 
and the future of residential and office settings or workplace settings. Now, we want to cue in here on something. The sometimes conflicting and complex goals of a B2B service like design. What makes the most physical sense for the company may not be what appeals to most of the individuals within the company. We've seen that with the densification of the office and the fear that we may go to the opposite extreme in our current economic climate. But as we're forced into this new extreme experiment in the virtual world, perhaps it'll force us to find a more harmonious balance of work and life. And as Jennifer said in the beginning, even across cultures, across industries, and so many other fronts coming to light in the equity conversations happening in 2020, perhaps our emotional needs are not so far apart. And meeting those emotional needs ties to business results. So I think there's, a, there's just a whole richness of thinking, reimagining and thinking through the new possible that designers are uniquely positioned to bring with their skills and training to business leaders and stakeholders to help with evolving how we experience life and work, but also how we grow our companies. Many are calling this period of time the Great Reset. I think, for many of us, life had crescendoed to a place that now, in this forced pause, we're all rethinking. So, I ask you, how do we positively disrupt to design a world we all want to be a part of. Special thanks to our interviewees in this episode, Jennifer Killian, Elizabeth Von Lay, Kelly Wirtz, and AJ Perrin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>